0: Welcome to the NIHR Dementia Researcher podcast brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world. Hello everyone and thanks for joining us. I am Megan O'Hare and I am delighted to be hosting our first daily Alzheimer's Association International Conference special podcast. So we'll be sharing news and our favourite moments from each day of the AAIC, uh, like we do normally, but as you probably know, the conference was due to take place in the Netherlands this year, but the pandemic has changed all that, and so this year's conference is taking place virtually, with every talk and poster still being shared online, and there are live scientific sessions and uh, pre-recorded and on-demand videos as well. I imagine a lot of you have registered, because I think they had over 20,000 registrants, which is uh, a lot of people. Um, and I think it's all worked really well. I think we can say that it's all worked really well. I know yesterday there were a couple of problems with probably bandwidth situations where some of the slides were a bit, bit blurry for the live sessions, but they're going to be available online soon, so then you'll be able to see properly. Um, so. Yeah, I think, uh, shall we move on to introductions? I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Lindsay Sinclair, psychiatrist and postdoctoral researcher over in Bristol. Dr. Emily Maguire, a research associate from Cardiff University and Professor Louise Serple, who is professor of biochemistry and director of neuroscience based at the University of Sussex. So I've interviewed a couple of you don't think me and Emily, we haven't met yet, but I'm um, very excited. Uh, so maybe we can start with a tiny introduction from all of you, so get a bit of your background and what you're working on right now. Uh, should we start with Louise, cause you're top of my screen.
1: Hello, hi Megan, thanks for the introduction. Um, so I'm a, one of the directors of Sussex Neuroscience um, and um, I work on, um, sort of a mixture of structural biology and cell biology to try and understand um, the causes of Alzheimer's disease. So yesterday's um, AAIC was pretty much my area, and it was exhausting in terms of trying to to watch just about every talk I possibly could. So I really enjoyed it. I mean, it's really amazing, and it's very similar to the sorts of things I've been doing. So there were some amazing panel discussions, which I'll talk about a bit later on
0: yeah we sort of mentioned before we started recording that they put all the basic science ones on yesterday um and that was that meant that you had to pick possibly between two or three favorite ones but i think they are all going to be up online again so we'll be able to catch up yeah. each in the week right. uh so lindsay Thank you very much, Megan. So I work
2: at the University of Bristol and I'm an Alzheimer's Society funded um, junior fellow there, which means that I'm a postdoctoral researcher as well as being a psychiatrist. But I'm not really doing any of that at the moment because I'm on maternity leave. Um, so From a perspective of a slightly workaholic working mother, the virtual conference is brilliant um and i think it makes it much more accessible to those, those of us who may have a few childcare issues particularly during this pandemic so i love today yeah.
0: <laughs> i think um we, I, we uh, did a podcast right at the end of your pregnancy, maybe with 38 weeks, I think. So. Yeah, he was born yeah. three
2: days later.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so um, hopefully we won't have any of that today. Um, but uh, yeah, I think having it virtually has really opened it up. Well, I mean, yeah, they've had 20,000 registrants, so that's
3: just been amazing, really. Um, and Emily? Oh, so I'm Emily, and I work in Cardiff in the Dementia Research Institute. I'm also really happy that it's virtual this year. I mean, it's nice to, it was nice to go to LA last year, but it's also really nice to listen to talks in your pyjamas uh, <laughs> as many coffees as you want. Uh, so I work, I use human stem cells and I differentiate them into microglia to study Alzheimer's. So at the moment I've got sort of two projects on the go. One is to investigate the effects of the uh, PLC gamma two mutation that was shown to protect against Alzheimer's, and the other is to try and generate um, high and low kind of genetic risk models of Alzheimer's using blood samples from uh, patients who have high and low genetic risk. So making them into stem cells. I um,
0: caught something on Radio 4 the other day about Toast, you know, the Nigel Slater book that I've never read but apparently it's very good. Anyway, then they did a stage play of it and now they're doing a radio play of it. And part of it is, if you go to the stage play, they give you um, walnut whips and biscuits throughout so that you can eat them while you're listening to cooking things and stories. Uh, But now they're doing it virtually. If you buy a ticket, they send you a walnut whip in the post. I did think maybe AAIC should have sent us some biscuits for the like coffee break bit because it's nice to make your own cup of tea, but... A free biscuit would have really, you know, topped it all off. Uh, anyway, so
3: if anyone's listening, for next year maybe, free biscuits would have had to be like over twenty thousand free biscuits, though that would have been yeah, quite, that's
0: quite a lot of biscuits. Okay, fine. <laughs> I'm just going to go out and buy some biscuits later. Um, So, okay, should we start with the uh, plenary session, which was delivered by Ralph Nixon on proteostasis failure in Alzheimer's disease and related dementias and new clues to pathogenesis and therapy. And uh, Louise, this is really very much your field. So do you want to give us a quick summary of the talk? I will. Um, If I start
1: to go into too much detail and get a bit too excited about it, then do just sort of wave at me. I've got too much but basically so Ralph Nixon is from um, NYU and he's a very well known name as you were saying Megan you remember having uh, referred to his work a lot in your thesis so um, and his work is really focusing on autophagy so if you mention autophagy then he's the name that comes up. Um, and just to say a little bit about what autophagy is, um, on some, sometimes people will pronounce it differently. Um, it's a biological mechanism of clearance um, of unwanted proteins, um, organelles, and it's generally thought to be a good thing. So it's a protective mechanism and it generally correlates with um, longevity and lifespan. Um, <clears throat> and um, it's intrinsically linked with the endosomal lysosomal system. So many proteins that have been highlighted Um, as being really important in Alzheimer's disease um, from GWAS studies and so on um, are endosomal, lysosomal proteins. So it really highlights how important it is in Alzheimer's disease. And what they've also um, noticed is that lysosomal storage diseases uh, show neurodegenerative symptoms. So it suggests that there's something about um, lysosomal system that's really important in the brain. Um, So Alzheimer's researchers have observed large Uh, membrane-bound compartments that suggest that there's a failure of this um, autophagosomal mechanism. Um, So really that's what he talked about, that's really what he's been doing for many years Um, and um, he mentioned that the autophagosomal autophagy system is tightly regulated by insulin signaling pathway and mTORS which also then links it back to lifespan and longevity which is really interesting I think Um, and he showed that if you can inhibit lysosomal function then you recapitulate AD type pathology Um, and what he really talked about in terms of sort of new findings was that he described a fluorescent system where they'd used an RFP and a GFP which allowed them to follow the autolysosomal or maturation, um, to follow acidification. So it responded to the um, pH of the environment, which um, is re- was really interesting for me because we've done something similar um, that um, my uh, a postdoc in my lab, Karen Marshall, published on recently. So that was really nice. Um, and um, what they noticed is that it looks like in Alzheimer's disease, the um, the lysosomal system is not properly acidified. So there seems to be something that's going on in the lysosomal system uh, that means there's a failure. So then there's a build-up of all of those um, undergraded proteins, many of which are things like A-beta and possibly tau as well. And he showed this really beautiful image of um, a cell um, that then sort of became filled with these lysosomal things, and they got bigger and bigger and bigger over time, and eventually the cell looked like it was no longer there at all, and it was just a sort of, well, it looked like a plaque, actually, a, uh, an amyloid plaque with a little nucleus in the middle. So essentially it sort of explodes out of the cell, and uh, so I just thought that that really nicely showed how um, how important lysosomes are and, and, and sort of how... The, the amyloid plaque is generated in in general.
0: Yeah he did uh, I enjoyed him saying that lysosomes used to be considered the most boring organelle <gasps> in the oh cell goodness. and now they're one of the most interesting because as you said like loads of genes from Giva's studies have centred on that endosomal-lysosomal axis. And then he had a list of so many neurodegenerative diseases. I thought that was really interesting. So the main
1: thing, I think, at the end of it was really that this was a possibility for um, targeting um, for therapeutics. So that's what he really left us with, that idea that, that we can try and enhance the lysosomal system um, to try and uh, produce therapies.
0: Yeah, the tool that he um, used that you mentioned, the fluorescent system, uh, as I understood it, it, it basically fluoresces green when it's the correct acidity, is that right? And then it quenches to red, or is it, it that it quenches to red as it gets more acidic, as you go through the different vacuoles and the lysosome sort of becomes more acidic. So if it doesn't, it stays green. Is that right?
1: I think that that's right. Whether yeah. We, yeah, green to red, I think is is the order. Should acidify. Yeah,
0: that's the way you want it to go, to know that you're, yeah.
1: Yeah, so we used a similar sort of system where we tagged A-beta with a um, cipher label um, and it just gets more and more red as it goes through the acidification system.
3: Mm.
1: Um, And so you can follow A-beta as it goes into the lysosomal system um, and ends up in... Do you do
0: that live and track them out? Exactly,
1: yeah, so you get a little movie of it all going in and getting brighter and brighter and brighter. And then it's interesting that it just sort of stays there. And it also seems to impair the lysosome system for other proteins. So if you add a different protein into the, um, into the cellular medium, normally it would be taken up by lysosomes and degraded. Um, uh, Sorry, taken up by endosomes and then lysosomes. But um, it seems that whole system seems to be impaired. So it's not just that you get lots of um, accumulation of protein in the lysosomes uh, and autophagosomes, but that uh, the whole system seems to be seems to stop working. So the cell doesn't really function as it should. So it's quite, I think it's cool. Yeah. And then there are lots of other talks that seem to sort of uh, come into that. So I can always go back to them later. Yeah.
0: yeah. Emily or Lindsay, did you also attend the
3: plenary? Uh, Yeah. And actually, so it's funny that he said that lysosomes were always boring because they've always been my favorite organelle because I did my PhD on lysosomes and on lysosomal diseases specifically. And uh, I guess it's, it's funny, I he mean, did briefly mention it, but the real overlap between lysosomal diseases, especially one I think called niemann pick type C and, um, and Alzheimer's disease. I mean, often it's actually called childhood Alzheimer's disease because you get storage of tau and amyloid in the brain and uh, you get like a similar-ish kind of neurodegeneration and uh, the loss of lysosomal function and progressive storage. So I think, yeah, the overlap and the, the importance of the lysosome. Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's disease is key, and clearly his contribution to the field is just immense. <laughs> and this was
0: centered on lysosomes in neurons, and you study microglia. I'm assuming there are lysosomes in microglia. Are they affected in any way? Is it a similar
3: situation in glial cells? Um, I think that uh, yes, probably. I don't know specifically because actually, since I've switched and working on Alzheimer's disease, I haven't done that much looking at the lysosome. But, uh, but yeah, there are lysosomes, they're present in all cells, and uh, I think the function would definitely be affected in microglia as well.
0: Yeah, and Lindsay?
2: So I came to the plenary from a completely non-lysosome specialist perspective. Um, so I normally work on um, things like depression and anxiety as manifestations of Alzheimer's disease or risk factors for the development of Alzheimer's disease. So nothing to do with lysosomes in my daily work. But what I particularly liked was the way that he was able to make it understandable for someone like me who didn't really know an awful lot about autophagy and lysosomes. And I really liked the way, um, particularly from a clinical perspective, that he was able to relate it to other similar diseases. I thought that was really good. Um, And I particularly liked the inside out model of where neuritic plaques come from, because that made a lot of sense to me. So that's great.
0: Yeah, I think obviously, not trying to sell his work but he was really hammering home that how many diseases the lysosome can cause you know defects or dysfunctional lysosomes can cause I thought that slide was really powerful where he listed them all um so maybe Lindsay as you've coming from a completely different area risk factors and what uh talks and posters stood out for you so, um, there were
2: a couple of these sessions which I really, really liked. Um, so, the locus ceruleus session, which was one of the on-demand sessions. I particularly liked the first talk by um, Faisalia Grunberg from the University of um, California and San Francisco and Sao Paulo. I've read some of her work before, but she was again able to make it really understandable to non-specialists. I was talking about how important the locus Aurelius and the rough are in the early development of Alzheimer's disease. And I hadn't realised until she was talking about it, that the volume of the locus aurelius drops by almost 10% with each um, step increase in BRARC stage. So that was a very new um, piece of information for me. And the other talks in that session were um, very good, but a lot more specialist. So for example, one of them was talking about pupil dilatation in mice. Um, another one was talking about um, human, fMRI. So a lot less general and kind of overviewy. So it was really good to have your um, Grenberg talking at the top of that session. And the white matter damage session, which is one of the live ones, um, had four speakers. So the first one was James Nicholl from Southampton. He was talking about ARIA which is an imaging abnormality that you see after a beta immunisation. And from a clinical clinical perspective, that's really good, talking about where you see these things on MRI, but what actually are they? Um, Donna Wilcock from Kentucky was talking about VCID using mesoscale discovery techniques. Um, and it's always nice to see new newish techniques like that being used and larger amounts of data in proteomics. And um, so that was great. And the one in that session, which I really, really liked and would recommend to any clinicians listening, was Professor Jana, Joanna Wardlaw from the University of Edinburgh, who's talking about white matter hyperintensities. Now, I've been to a lot of talks about white matter in Alzheimer's disease. Um, I've seen loads of scans with white matter hyperintensities, but I didn't know what they actually were, it turns out, until I listened to her talk. I thought it was a brilliant description of what they actually are and why they cause problems. So I'd recommend that to any clinicians listening or anyone interested in vascular disease. Would you um, like to
0: summarise through quickly what they are? Um,
2: yeah, sure um so it's to do with fluid getting stuck in perivascular spaces and that's what impairs the fluid and water clearance and that's why white right matter hyperintensities can increase or decrease in size it's to do with the amount of fluid in edema which i had no idea about i'd thought like many people that they were just a permanent lesion and um, so i had no idea that there was so much of a dynamic component to them
0: okay and with that um be in like potential area of therapy that you could target that area or if it's sort of something somehow you drain the fluid I don't know um so
2: um it's not something that you could go in with a needle and drain but it would be a bit more of an idea um about When you're looking at someone's scans to say, is it progressing? Um, Is it resolving? Um, Has it completely disappeared? What kind of evidence of core damage is there that remains? So I think it would make it easier to talk to patients about what these white spots on their scans actually mean and what the change in size Mm -hmm. over time might mean for them, as well as having obvious research implications. And then there were. A few of the posters that I particularly liked, but I must say, um, like Louise, I found um, the whole poster thing quite overwhelming. There were so many of them and there were hundreds and you just have to choose from the title and then hope that the PDF loads, which it did for almost all of them. So it took me probably two and a half hours to have a good look through the posters whereas normally you just cruise past them and go oh that looks interesting or i like the picture on that so it took a lot longer um but the
0: one but which you i think that p- were different ones that maybe weren't so visually impactful but the title really caught your eye so you looked at them in a different way i don't know <laughs>
2: Probably, probably, because I'm normally a very visual person. So it probably forced me to pay more stringent attention to what was in the title and what might have been in the abstract. So the one which I was most interested in was from Elena Chrysostomu from the University of Maryland, Washington, who's developed an online tool called Nemo AD that uses seven existing data sets to allow you to look at gene expression, in particular. Um, genes um, between different areas or between different cell types in one area and I just thought that's a kind of tool that will be really useful to people when they're planning studies or trying to work out what to look at so I thought that was great. Um, from a clinical perspective there was another poster from Alexandra Vigand from San Diego who was pointing out that there's no consensus on a threshold for positivity of tau PET scans which would be kind of helpful to have if we're going to use them diagnostically Um, she was saying that some people relate whether a scan is positive for tau to whether it's positive for amyloid or not and it would be useful to have a clear idea of how much tau there has to be in what areas before you say that it's abnormal or not so from a clinical perspective that'd be very useful and finally um there is a very productive fellow Alzheimer's Society funded researcher called Kirsty McAleese from Newcastle who had four posters all of which were dense with results and so she's obviously been working really hard And again, she just had a very useful practical poster looking at diagnoses in the Brains for Dementia Research cohort and showing that pure disease is um, the exception rather than the rule. So she was talking about how most people have evidence of more than one pathology, which again is just relatively practical and useful and um, helps you plan studies and not be too much of a purist, I think, when you're using human tissue.
0: Oh uh, Yeah, she's done a couple of podcasts for us. Uh, she's very good.
3: Yeah.
0: Um, but four posters, that's a lot. <laughs> yes. Um, and Emily, any posters or other sessions that stood out for
3: you? Um, so I think that probably, so there was lots of good talks, and I watched a lot of talks, and I think the one that I enjoyed the most was one called Human Brain Resilience to AD Pathology, and that was by Teresa Gomez. Isla, Isla, from Harvard Medical School. And uh, I thought it was really cool because what she was looking at in particular is uh, brains that come from people who have like uh, tau and amyloid stored in their brains, uh, but they reach the age of 90 and they don't develop Alzheimer's disease. So her idea is to find out what's different between these brains and uh, Alzheimer's disease brains where they you know develop Alzheimer's in order to find out what is the root cause of the pathology or what maybe we should be targeting therapeutically. So these brains, even though they have uh, neuronal tau and amyloid, they don't show neuronal degeneration in the same way. But one thing that they do have is they seem to have um, much less microglial. So the resilient brains have a lot less microglial activation when compared with Alzheimer's disease brains. And uh, this, a much less inflammatory cytokine production and this really ties into sort of genetic studies in Alzheimer's, which kind of highlight microglia as being important in the pathology. And um, so for one, like the, the gene that I work on is expressed in microglia and seems to be important in this as well. So, because this, this, I think this is really important because it suggests that in the future, maybe we should be trying to look at therapeutics that are like microglial targeting rather than necessarily amyloid and tau targeting therapeutics. Uh, so, yeah, I, I enjoyed that quite a bit.
0: Sorry, do you think that those people have defective um, microglial responses? So it's that they just have never, you know, their microglia don't respond in the same way. So the normal response would end up with Alzheimer's disease, but this is an abnormal response. Or is it that there's some other, I don't know, what would be not making them activated?
3: So I think that they might have uh, the resilient brains. They might have kind of genetic or, you know, maybe lifestyle factors that mean that their microglia respond in in different ways to the ones with the plaques and the tangles where they develop Alzheimer's. Uh, If it is, you know, so the changes in the microglia behavior. So microglia, it seems that at certain stages of Alzheimer's they can protect against the disease. Maybe uh, you know, to slow the progress, but they can also, uh, you know, overactivation of microglia can also cause problems in the disease. So it's probably just changes in microglial behaviour, which uh, we're trying to work on at the moment. Lots of people in the field are trying to work on, but we don't know exactly what the specific changes are yet. Does that answer, mm-hmm. Louise? Did you also
0: see that talk?
1: No, I, w- I was just really pleased that Emily. Um, Decided to talk about it because I saw a bit of it and I saw a panel discussion where it was mentioned and I thought oh This is really fascinating. I want to go back and watch it um, The only thing I did pick up was that uh, they did Obviously talk about activated microglia, but they also talked about there being more oligomeric P- uh, phospho tau in the synapse which it's interesting, isn't it how we we watch things and we pick up the things that or feel important to us. So that's the bit I've written down. You obviously talked about microglia. Which one is? I mean, activated microglia is obviously very important. I did write that down. But it's the way that I go. Oh, Pete, out! I'll I'll put that down. You know. So it was it was really really good. And it's such a clever idea, isn't it? The whole idea of looking at resilience. What is it that that you know some people have got that somehow stops them from being affected by the pathology? So. That was the only thing.
0: So in the resilient brains, there was more oligomeric phosphat- tau. No, in the ones, oh. no, in the
1: disease, people who yeah. were showing Oh, symptoms. in
0: the disease, right, okay. Yeah. Which, okay, and that was at the sign-up specifically?
1: Yeah.
0: Okay, right, so the resilient brains had not got to that stage, or, yeah.
3: Okay, um, anything else, Emily? Well, I guess, well, I guess it is, it is true, it's funny, because I... The main, my main takeaway from that talk was the activated microglia stuff. But I did think the, uh, phospho tau stuff was also uh, the synapses specifically was also really interesting because, um, it's kind of at the moment, I'm sort of thinking a lot about synaptic pruning and uh, synaptic specific degeneration and its role in Alzheimer's disease and how that relates to microglia, which are often the ones that prune the synapses. And there was a previous talk in the same session, uh, where, because it's quite hard to look at synapses, we're developing new techniques to do this. And Thomas Monteen from Stanford University has uh, developed a new technique called, what is it called, mass synaptometry, where he kind of barcodes individual synapses from uh, kind of human brains. I think it was human brains. And then he pulls them together. And then this allows him to examine differences in individual synapses which is really cool, and he found a similar thing to what Teresa Gomez Isla found, which is an increase in tau specifically at the synapses in Alzheimer's disease brains. And he also found increases in injury markers and oxidative stress and ubiquitination. So all kind of damage markers within the Alzheimer's disease synapses and compared to controls. And uh, this technique I think in, in the future is gonna be really good for looking at this. In the- and links the two talks together as well, nicely.
0: I went to quite a few of the sort of um, microbiome talks, which was talking about the gut-brain axis, um, but also again about immunity and immunology and that sort of thing, which I guess links in with the microglia. Um, did anyone go to any of the microbiome talks? They were probably at the same time as the white matter ones and other ones.
3: Oh, but I wanted and I know what I'll listen to them later. I'm, I'm
0: yeah, they were good. They were good. Um, there was uh, one, let me find her name, Mei um, Yu Geng from uh, Shanghai, and they were actually looking at a drug or a therapy, GV971, that seemed to um, actually in- regulate and improve the peripheral immune response which led to decreased neuroinflammation. So it was quite interesting that there was actually a, you know, it wasn't just um, talking about basic biology. She actually had a drug therapy that she was talking about. So that was quite interesting. Um, Any other, uh, did you see any posters, Emily? I know that Louise and Lindsay have said it was a bit overwhelming, just the numbers of them. Did you manage to see any?
3: Uh, So I mainly mainly focused on talks. Yeah. I I mean, I did, what poster did I like? Well, there was one that I particularly liked. And again, it was about the synapse because I guess that was a bit of my, a bit of my focus yesterday, but it's called early developmental abnormalities in hippocampal synapse distribution in a mouse model of AD. And it was by a guy called Ajit Ray. And, um, essentially what well, I thought it was good again because you know more techniques to look at the synapse and it looks like he developed a really cool genetically encoded post-synaptic targeting construct that he used to uh, label the synapses and he got some really really nice pictures of them and they, they look really cool and he was uh, comparing kind of synapse loss in different areas of the Alzheimer's disease mouse brain and he found that synapses are lost to different extents and at different stages and different areas of the Brain and I, you know, I thought this both was really nice research and also You know, really nice pictures and a really good start for the future kind of studies. Were
0: there any correlates with where the synapses were being lost? that um, we talked about phosphatau or
3: anything? Well, as far as As I remember, he hadn't looked at that in this study yet. But I would assume that that would be a really nice place, like a really nice thing to look at next. Um, And what areas of the brain
0: seemed particularly vulnerable to synaptic loss? Hmm.
3: So, well, the weird thing is, what is it? So the thing is, I don't know that much about specific areas of the brain. <laughs> so I could tell you what he put. So in the apical tuft, uh, he found that synapses are lost early, and, and then they remain low. But mm-hmm. in the uh, distal apical synapses, they're elevated early, and then they normalize at later stages. And then elevated they... first of all. Yeah, 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 and yeah, and in other areas, it seems like they're lost at later stages, and sometimes they're lost early and late stages. So, yeah, I mean, basically it's a complex picture. I think that's what it shows. Um, Overall, And we should be looking at different brain areas when thinking about it. Although, as I said, my knowledge on, apart from, you know, general overview (laughs) isn't great. So I'm probably not the best person to ask about that.
0: Um, Anything from you, Louise? Did you see any of these other talks that these guys saw?
1: I I can say a little bit about some of them. For example, I mean, and they all, they tend to, link back to what i i tend to look at but um uh, i i went into some of the on-demand sessions um and had a chat with people which was really nice there was one particular one which was one of the early ones where i attempted to watch the talks at the same time as talking to people because I had not been prepared enough because um, you have to get in there really early and I talked to um, Eleanor Drummond who's in Sydney um, and she talked about um, she was looking at the content of plaques so she was basically taking plaques and then um, analysing what was in them to see what the provenance of A-beta was and it, I guess it tells you about where it's come from and the really nice thing about that was that she found lots of endolysosomal proteins in there Uh, So that was really interesting, I really enjoyed that. And I also talked to um, Cora O'Neill, who works in Cork. um, And she works on a protein called um, Tripml, which is a calcium channel. Um, which is found in lysosomes, and uh, she'd found impaired function there. And she was looking at um, the possibility of using that as a target for therapy. So that was really nice. Uh, And then I went to a different session where they were talking about um, RNA interactions, quite a lot of RNA interactions with tau. And uh, Lulu Jiang, who's in Boston working with um, uh, Ben in, um, was had this really nice system. I really like these things where she had um, made a cry2 optogenetic tau, which meant that uh, it was being expressed in the cells. And then when you sh- shine blue light on it, them, uh, the cry2 dimerizes. So you start to get oligomerization of the protein. Uh, so you can sort of trigger ag- aggregation and assembly, and then see what happens. So that was really nice.
0: Very very specific places as well, can't you do it? yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah, so
1: that's really yeah, so clever systems mm. um, to answer difficult questions. I think it's really, really interesting. And then um, I also talked to um, Stephanie Fowler, in, uh, who's at Columbia. Um, and what she'd been doing was isolating vesicles from brain um, and then characterising what the tau inside them looked like. Uh, and what she'd found was that there, this, the region of tau that they found was um, repeat three and repeat four which was really interesting because it uh, correlates with the core of tau which has been found um, from cryoEM studies of paired helical filaments so it so she was essentially looking at a tau that then goes on to form these paired helical filaments and uh, you know some of these interactions are really fascinating because then i emailed a few of those people had a chat with them um maybe gave some you know we we have a bit of an exchange of ideas so i think i what i would really encourage people to do is to go into those um chat rooms Some, so the first one was a zoom one and so we could see everybody um and that was fascinating but then the second one um was um just typing and stephanie fowler actually i i typed in after the whole thing had finished and she and then she replied to me and i just think that these this sort of interaction is uh, it's not the same as seeing people in real, real life but possibly it's more inclusive mm-hmm. um, because I what I really encourage people to do is just to you know talk to talk to Rav Nixon talk to um, you know people that you possibly might be worried about just walking up to a massive AAIC conference but you know you can ask questions and and have a conversation with people and I've said I mean I've I don't think anyone knows who I am so you know it's just having a, a really nice interesting chat about things I found people to be very open mm. and interested yeah. in your your point of view so yeah, yeah. I'd
0: not actually thought about networking virtually yeah. um, that's good. I'm always, I just hide at home in my pajamas um, <laughs> but yeah you're right I mean I probably wouldn't go up to Ralph Nixon in real life but I, you could you know send him a question or whatever, he can always ignore you. Exactly. To ignore someone in real life or, well, if they do, it's, it's yeah. so
1: destroying But for example, Ben Woolison, I've been reading loads of his papers and I've been, you know, he works on stress granules and what's in stress granules and whether they are the precursor to aggregation, particularly focusing on tau at the moment, but also in some of the other diseases like and um, TDP-43 and things like that. Um, and I and uh, you know it was really nice just to uh, just to type conversation with him and he just mm. came across as really nice and really open to people's ideas so yeah so if, uh, it's my recommendation anyway
0: well let us know if you have yes. any strong collaborations from this
1: mm. um, yeah. you know I think that that's one of the we what I miss about going to conferences is that sort of conversation that you have with people uh, over. The coffee table or something like that and it's really nice to find that a virtual meeting can provide that although not quite as well but yeah possibly with some positive sides to it that, that we would get in real life
0: yeah I guess people have had like what three four months practice now doing things virtually haven't they mm-hmm. so it's not quite so awkward we're used to communicating with our families like that so maybe it's benefited from being in July and not right at the beginning of lockdown when people wouldn't have you know quite known how it worked um but yeah we were talking this morning about obviously for the environment it's much better to have it virtually um but you're missing out on certain things so whether you could do you know every other year you have a face-to-face meeting otherwise it's virtually I don't know but it seems to be working well and if you know We should all try networking like Louise did. (laughs) That's the next stage. Um, So are there any other final points you'd like to talk about? Lindsay we haven't really talked about any risk factors that you found or anything like that?
2: Um, I don't think there was so much focus on risk factors or at least not in the sessions that i watched yesterday the only one uh, the only other one even which i would mention just from a clinical perspective was a smallish clinical trial done by a chap called Jürgen Clausen from Niemegen who was looking at cerebral autoregulation in alzheimer's disease and there have been fairly classic studies apparently showing that cerebral autoregulation is impaired in an app mouse model Um, And certainly clinically there have always been discussions about do we put people on antihypertensives because they may have an element of vascular dementia or do we worry about reducing cerebral blood flow. And he showed looking at calcium channel blockers that you can drop people's um, blood pressure and it doesn't affect their cerebral blood flow. So from a clinical, again, quite practical perspective, it's useful to have research like that saying you can treat people um, and without worrying about completely knocking off all of their perfusion. Um, I would echo Louise's comments about networking I'm always far too scared to go up to important people in the flesh particularly if they're surrounded by I don't know friends or other people asking questions so I think that if you're if you're shy then just typing something um, and hoping that you might get a reply is um, is great Um, and I think The AIC actually said at the start of the plenary that they're planning on doing more virtual sessions in the future, which is obviously more inclusive for people from um, countries which may be less funded um, in terms of travel grants. um, And it just makes it more accessible to a greater number of people.
0: Yeah. And as you said at the beginning, childcare or, you know, going away to America for two weeks possibly isn't possible for a lot of people I can't think of many
2: conferences where they'd let you sit feeding a baby in the middle of the session
0: (laughs) I don't know they have the cinemas don't they where you can take your baby and feed your baby so (laughs) they're normally quite loud (laughs) oh yeah and Louise has just pointed out to me that Friday is the ask the expert day so that will be the day where we can all send our questions in and build up our confidence throughout the week (laughs) <laughs> and then get ready to do it on Friday. So thank you, and I—I I assume you're all going to attend some talks today.
1: I'm fit some in, but I'm hoping that um, that it might be possible to watch them later.
0: Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yes, that is also the beauty of all the on-demand stuff, and um, that the live sessions will then be available. I think Emily said in twenty-four hours after the broadcast, so we can pick those up again. Um, so yeah, thank you guys. I've enjoyed our chat.
1: i lovely <laughs> to talk to you. Thank you, Megan. I'm really nice to meet you both, Lindsay and Emily.
3: Yeah, it's been great. I'm going to, I think today I'm going to catch up on some of the sessions that you guys mentioned. So I don't know much about white matter damage in AD. Yeah. So that a go. And the, the RNA one, power RNA. That mm. sounds good.
0: Yeah. And you're going to write someone a question, yeah? Virtually
3: network. <laughs> Networking. I do okay. know- work inside a lot
0: <laughs> I, I wanted
1: to say something about that because i've been one of those people that sits on a table who's the ask the expert and then they you know the idea is that someone comes and talks to you at lunchtime and it's the worst thing in the world when you're sitting there by yourself and no one comes to talk to you <laughs> so what i would say is that the the people who are running those sessions want you to ask questions they want it to be all buzzy and interesting <laughs> and uh, so yeah that's what i'm i think is People want, you, want to hear from people. They don't want to sit there all by themselves feeling a bit sad.
0: Yeah. Also, <laughs> as soon as you ask a question, it prompts someone else to ask a better one. So, you know. <laughs> well, thank you, guys, and enjoy the rest of the week. And uh, everyone else, we are recording another podcast. We're recording one each day this week, except Friday, I think. So, anyway, catch our next one. Bye brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society. Supporting early career dementia researchers across the world.